Well, I was on a cruise ship with my wife this past week. I'd never done that before. It was just a joy and a relaxation, a lot of fun, a lot of food. Man, if they charge you by the pound when you leave the boat, they're going to really do well. But uh, I was in a hot tub with this stranger from Brooklyn, New York. And uh, he said to me something like this. He goes, man, why can't we just get along? Why can't we live at peace? Why is there terrorism? Why does Air Egypt get exploded out of the sky for no good reason? Why don't, you know, what's, the, what's with this? When are we going to have peace? Can't we just get along? I said, do you know what the problem is? Sin. Until Jesus Christ comes to set up his literal thousand-year kingdom to suppress sin forcibly with an iron rod, We're going to deal with sin, injustice. We're going to deal with pain. We're going to deal with death. We're going to deal with terrorism. We're going to deal with self-centeredness. We're going to deal with war. We're going to deal with broken treaties. We're going to deal with it all until Jesus comes back. Amen? I want to take you to the beginning of sin so we can understand how we got into the mess that we're in. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the beginning of sin in the human race. Before Genesis 3, there was no sin. There was no mess. It was perfect. Perfect garden, perfect people, perfect creation, perfect everything. No mess. But now we're in a big mess. And here's how it happened. I'm just going to read through the chapter and pause and make comment. How we got in the mess we're in. Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He must have not looked ugly. He must have looked rather attractive. He must not look scary. He must have looked rather uh, accommodating. And he spoke to her and said, has God said this? Has God said that? He'll do that to you too, you know. He'll say, does God really mean that? Does God, has God really said anything about sin? That sin? Two. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. She's right. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat or eat it or touch it lest you die. Well, he didn't say you can't touch it. He didn't say that. He said you can't eat it. And look where that tree was. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God positioned strategically and purposefully in the center of the garden. Not in some back 40 of the garden, but right where they walked Every day, they passed by this tree, that the fruit of which was forbidden food. God made them moral creatures, capable of choosing good or bad, and he put his tree, the test tree, in the middle of the garden. You will face choices to honor or dishonor God in the middle of your garden this week. So will I. Four, and the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. That's a direct uh, challenge on the truth of God. Five, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Implication being God isn't that good of a God. He's kept your eyes closed in some respect. You don't know everything that there is to know. But if you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will know what you do not know now, which is a knowledge of good and evil. What they didn't think through was what evil was and what it would be like to know it. She came to the conclusion with serpent's help that she was lacking something, but she wasn't. She was perfect. 
Her environment was perfect and she was perfect. Six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Let me stop there. This is a working out for the first time of 1 John 2, verse 16, if you want to write that down. In that New Testament verse of 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, these three categories of temptation to sin are found. Namely, lust of the flesh, that was when she saw it was good for food, lust of the flesh. And then there's lust of the eyes, it says it was a delight to the eyes. And then third, that it was desirable to make one wise, wiser than you were before you would eat it, then that was the pride of life. That's how Satan still tempts you and me. The lust of the flesh, it'll meet your appetites. The lust of the eyes, oh, it looks too good to avoid. And the pride of life, if you only did this, you would be seen as more important, you would be seen as more affluent, you would be seen as more whatever. That's how Satan tempts me, and those are the categories that Satan uses to tempt each of us. The lust of the flesh, it was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. Watch for those categories of temptation this week. Picking it up in the middle of verse 6, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. The text doesn't specifically, explicitly say immediately or promptly or right away, but it would seem to me that he could have been standing right beside his wife at the forbidden tree, saw her tempted by the serpent, and didn't step in to protect, didn't step in to guard, didn't step in to pull her out of the temptation if he was beside her, and I think he was. The silence of Adam, the passivity of Adam. And men, that is still a big temptation in our flesh to be passive, not leaders of our wives, not leaders in our homes, to be silent when we should speak, to be active and not inactive. Verse 7, so they've both eaten, they've both sinned. Verse 7, and the eyes of both of them were opened. Oh yeah, they were opened. And they knew that they were naked. See, they had no clothes before, but they were perfectly fine with that. They were beautiful in the bodies that God made for them. There was no shame or embarrassment in being naked. They were free in that beautiful, perfect garden. But soon as they both sinned, they became ashamed of their nakedness. What did they do? The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They tried to solve their own problem of unrighteousness. We might call it religion. Self-efforts to make ourselves covered properly before a holy God. So they grabbed some leaves and made loincloths and botanical clothing. And people have been trying to cover their own sin with human effort ever since. Good works, church membership, giving to the poor, none of these things are wrong, but they don't cover our unrighteousness, only 
Christ's blood does that. And so isn't it interesting that there's a stage here of God's righteousness? Think about it. God created the first man and woman righteous. That was created righteousness. Then they fall into sin. They sow fig leaves together, and they try to cover their nakedness. That self-righteous righteousness doesn't work. Then we'll see what happens in a moment here. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He did that every day with them before this as well. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God. Really? (laughs) They hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God. Really? No. None of us can hide from the presence of the Lord God. He's omnipresent. Any situation you walk into, God will be there first. Because he's omnipresent. But these sinners attempted to hide from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Verse 9, And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God wasn't looking for information. (laughs) When God asks a question, he's never looking for information because he knows everything. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about the Bahamas. He knows everything about the world. He knows everything about Cairo, Egypt. He knows everything about the plains that's in the Mediterranean Sea. He knows everything. And so when he said, where are you? It wasn't for his benefit. It was for their benefit as they tried to hide behind trees and fig leaves. Verse 10. And he said, Adam spoke up now, but he was a little late. And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Well, that's honest. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Their conscience. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God did not ask that question to get information he lacked. He asked the question so they would face up to what they did. They would admit what they did was wrong. They would face it. They would admit it. They would be able to begin dealing with it with God's help. 12. And the man said, the woman thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Blame-casting event number one in human history. That's that woman. She did it. He didn't say, I was right beside her. Could have stopped her. The woman you gave me, she did it, and then she handed it off to me, Lord. Surely you'll understand it wasn't all me. Maybe I'm not even to blame, Lord. I mean, look at her. She ate first. Boy, it's easy to push our blame for sin onto someone else. Well, even my boss. The hoodlums on this island. My spouse. 12, and the man said to God, the woman who thou gavest to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So he's confessed his sin. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Again, he didn't lack information. He wanted her to face her sin. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. Down blame, down blame again. So Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Handy. And I ate. Now she confesses her sin. So now they both confessed and admitted their sin. That's good. 
14, and the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Apparently the serpent wasn't always a snake. He was erect. He wasn't slithering on the dust, but after God cursed him, he has been. 15. Speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity, a fight between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. God says the battle of the ages is starting right now between good and evil, between Satan and God, between Satan and the seed of the woman. You know, in Hebrew thought, the identity and the significance of every child is through the father, not through the mother. But isn't it interesting that God highlights that it would be the seed of the woman that would defeat the serpent? Jesus had no biological father. He was virgin born. So it was the seed of the Virgin Mary, Christ incarnate, who would solve the good-evil battle decisively. Jesus did so on the cross. It is finished. 15, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head. When you bruise a snake on the head, I delight doing that. I hate them. Those of you who love reptiles that are called snakes, I'm very sorry. But anyone I see, I crush its head. I hate them. They give me the creeps. And you, he, the seed of the woman, Christ, shall bruise you on the head, and you, serpent, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. Ever had a bruised heel? Ever hurt your Achilles tendon? Ever had a bone spur? Ever had plantar fasciitis? It's painful. So is the cross. Jesus Christ was bruised on the heel, inflicted with tremendous emotional, physical, psychological pain to bear our sins. That's a beautiful prophecy. Satan, Christ is going to bruise you on the head. You're going to be killed in your effect on the mankind one day, and then thrown into the lake of fire forever. But you, Satan, you're going to get to bruise the seed of the woman on the heel. Christ will have to go to the cross to solve the sin, which is the mess we're in right now. The mess we're in right now is sin. In my heart, in each of your hearts, in each heart in the world, sin. 16. So he's, God has addressed a, a sentence for punishment for say, uh, the serpent, uh, Satan. Now to, God turns to the woman, Eve, in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. There wasn't going to be labor pain to have a baby before they sinned. You can speak to Eve, ladies, when you see her in heaven. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband. Now, when you look at the Hebrew word for desire here, it is not sexual or 
romantic desire in view here, but the word means a desire to usurp, a desire to one-up. And if you doubt that, the same Hebrew word is used in chapter 4, the next chapter, verse 7. Listen, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Same Hebrew word. God is saying in chapter 4 that sin is crouching at the door of our lives, wanting to usurp us, wanting to one-up us, wanting to one-up God in our lives. So the desire here is not for a marital sexual desire. There's nothing wrong with that. God created that. But this is what's not in view when God told Eve as part of her sentencing, your desire will be for your husband. God is saying, in your flesh, in your sin, married woman, you're going to want to run the show. And men, if we've been passive and absent and silent, shame on us. Step up. By the way, there's a Stepping Up Men's Conference on June the 4th. You ought to be there, guys. I'll hope to see you there. Right? 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband. You could translate the verb, the, the Hebrew verb here, from a shall be to a was even. Yet your desire was for your husband. Why'd she go to the tree first? Why'd she forge ahead of him? <laughs> this may not be kind. But on that cruise ship, it was many European people. There are some unbelievably aggressive European women when it comes to food. I'm telling you what. They get into that buffet line and they kind of elbow you and no excuse me, nothing. I had to step back a couple times and go, if it's that important to you, go right ahead. They reload this thing all the time. Unbelievable. But anyway, she got ahead of her husband to the tree, and women have been trying to get ahead of their husbands ever since. Part of the curse. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Uh, he shall have responsible, loving, servitude leadership of you. When I stand before Christ, at the beam of judgment seat of Christ, he's going to ask me, did you love Beth? Were you used in her life to make her more like Jesus? Were you unselfish as her leader? What was the tone of your family? Did you raise children that want to live for the glory of God? God's going to ask me all those questions. He's not going to ask Beth any of those questions because that's my responsibility. Stepping up conference, guys, June 4th. If you want further reading on this idea of, of husbands being in the will of God to rule over their spouses, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 3 and 5, and Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Man, God has given us as married husbands one job is to love our respective wives. To know their needs, to sacrificially give to meet their needs without concern for the cost or the payback. If I asked you men, what is 
your wife's top three needs right now? You should have a clue. If you don't have a clue, ask her on the way home from church today. Hey, what are your top three needs today? Then do something about it. And by the way, ladies, if your husband has to turn to you and say, by the way, what are your top three needs today? Don't discount it. Well, you should have known. I mean, you should have known. Just say, thanks for asking. Let me tell you, one, two, three. Help them. I like to say, I'm as dumb as I appear to be. I need all the help I can get. So I asked Beth, what are your top three needs? One, two, three. Okay, let me write those down because I do well with less. Now let me work on it. You should know what your wife's top three needs are at any given moment. Do you? 17, now God turns to the man, Adam. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. There you go. He listened to her. She must have said, hey, I just ate. <laughs> Come on, it makes us, gives us knowledge we lack. Come on. He listened. That would have been a good time for him not to listen said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Man, I want to see Adam. I know I'm not supposed to be angry in heaven, but I'll tell you what, when I work in my vegetable gardens, mowing my grass, in the heat of the sun, sweating, man, this where it started. They had work to do in the garden before they fell into sin, but it wasn't that hard. It wasn't hard physical labor. And now it is. Earning a living? Are you kidding me? Tough. 18. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, yeah? And you shall eat of the plants of the field. Yes. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam was made out of dust. So are we. Inasmuch as it has pleased God Almighty, our loving Heavenly Father, to take from our midst by gathering to himself, we commit this one's earthly tent to its final resting place. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Death, physical death, was none. My dad's been a funeral director for over 50 years. My grandfather before him, they will be unemployed in heaven. No death, no funeral homes, they will be unemployed. But right now, death is a big reality because of Adam and Eve's sin. This is how we got into the mess we're in. 20, now the man called his wife's name Eve isn't that interesting that God allowed him to name Eve? Shows you something about God's delegated authority to men. Not because we're better, just because it's God's plan. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Yeah, she certainly was. There was no other woman to do that first uh, birthing of children. It was only Eve. And the Lord God, this is it, and the Lord God made garments 
of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Remember, we had created righteousness. Adam and Eve were created with perfect righteousness. They fell into sin. They tried to do self-righteousness with fig leaves. And now God is going to provide righteousness to them. That's what God's been doing ever since first sin, providing righteousness for believers in him. Now, he, he, interestingly, he made their clothing not out of leaves, but out of skins, animal skins. He made garments of skin. The only way God did that was that he killed some animals. Blood was shed. Still how it is today. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Has his blood washed you clean? Is his blood continuously washing you clean? Religion doesn't wash you clean. Mass, indulgences, purgatory. That's all inventions of a church. The blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So Lord God graciously made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God clothed them. They didn't clothe themselves with any self-righteousness that counted in the eyes of God. Have you allowed God to clothe you in his righteousness found only through his son and his sacrifice on the cross as evidenced by his empty grave that it was good enough sacrifice? And if you have, are you telling everybody you meet about this offer of righteousness, Christ's righteousness via Christ's shed blood to be received by the hand of faith like a child's faith? Please do that. There are people all around this building every week that are going to hell except they know Jesus Christ. Who's going to tell them? We are. We must. Verse 22, God, in 21, made garments of skin and clothed them. 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. I wonder what that meant. Now we know, knowing good and evil. God understood good and evil before Genesis 3. There's a whole theological large question, did God create evil? No, God did not create evil. But he knew about it. He knew all of its devastating effects in the, in the corridors of time going forward that it would necessitate the giving of his son to get us out of the mess we're in. Then the Lord God said, 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life. Oh, there was a tree of life. There was also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They weren't to eat its fruit. But also in the garden, there was a tree of life, which they could have eaten. They could and did eat of prior to the fall. He said, knowing good and evil now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Didn't God want them to live forever? God didn't want them to live forever perpetually alienated from him by sin. And so mercifully, God did something to prevent these sinners, Adam and Eve, from getting to the tree of life because if they'd eaten from the tree of life after they had sinned, they would have been locked into sin for the rest of eternity. Isn't God merciful that he would block them? 
So how did he block them? Verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden. Get out of here. Get out of this garden. You've enjoyed it. It's perfect, but get out of here. I don't want you eating of the tree of life. I don't want you to be separated from me forever and ever and ever by your sin. Get out of here. He drove the man out. 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. 24, so he, God, drove the man out. Drove the man out. God didn't just say, get out. He pushed him out. Circumstantially, he pushed Adam and Eve out of the garden. That's how merciful God is. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. That's a class of angels. And the flaming sword, which turned in every direction. Can you imagine? God puts a cherub, cherub angel with a flaming literal sword to guard the tree of life in case on their way out of the garden, they decided to eat from the tree of life and be perpetually alienated from God forever. What a merciful God. So he drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction, to guard the way to the tree of life. What a merciful God. Do you know his mercy in Christ? If you do, do you tell everyone you meet of his mercy? If you don't, who will? If I don't, who will? Government won't. The educational system per se won't. The commercial community per se won't. CNN won't. Chicken Noodle News. It won't. The Guardian won't. The Tribune won't. Will you tell them? Will you stand in the tradition of God's perfect mercy to block people from going to hell by sharing the way of salvation with prayer and with love? I shared my faith several times on the cruise boat, but when I would try to go into the gospel, if someone wasn't interested, I didn't force it, I didn't push it down their throat. I just trust, okay, Lord, I'm not the one to share the gospel with this person right now, but send someone in time before they die. And then I just went and mingled in the food lines and on the deck and the swimming pool and everything else and waited for the next person that came across my path and I just broached the issue. Got to share the gospel several times, people we ate with every dinner. That's how you do it. But you've got to be looking to do it. You've got to be wanting to do it. You've got to be saying, God, you've been so merciful to me. You've guarded me from getting to hell by presenting the gospel to me in an understandable way, in the power of the Holy Spirit, giving me faith to believe in Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior before I'm in a casket. God, you're merciful to me. Help me to be an agent of mercy, to speak <laughs> the truth without apology. That's how we got to be in the mess we're in. And the guy's question in the hot tub, when is this going to end? I said, it's not going to end until Christ comes back. It's a sin problem. It's not a political problem. It's not a religious problem. 
It's a sin problem, and we all have that sin problem. You're a great group. Thank you for your attention to God's word this morning. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and its help on the history of the genesis of sin. Lord, we know that each of us are sinners in need of a Savior. Thank you for your mercy. If any would be in the sound of my voice in prayer now, Lord, that that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray they would come up to the front and speak with me and my wife upon dismissal. We could help them to have a certainty they're forgiven and they're bound for heaven. Lord, be glorified in our understanding of this chapter and in our living out of its implications. Be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.